0: Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. In the olden days of newspapers, and I'm talking about decades ago, there was a specific way of printing photographs. Photos were given to the printer who copied the picture using a special camera that converted everything to something known as halftone, so it could be put in the paper. If you looked really closely at the resulting picture, you'd see that it was made up of a pattern of dots. Each one was a different size, and proportional to the blackness of the original photo in that particular location on the photograph. Viewed at a distance, it looked like a normal picture, but if you got up real close, all you saw was the dots. Okay, wait, let's uh, try something else. Uh, Have you ever sat up close to a TV? And I mean really close. So close that you can see the individual pixels. That's kind of cool because you get to see the tiniest components of the video that's being broadcast. But looking at a pixel or two isn't really helpful when you're actually hoping to understand anything that's being broadcast. You're too close. There's no perspective to anything. Sometimes to really understand things, you need to sit back. And I mean way back in order to perceive things, to understand things, to appreciate things, and to basically figure out why they are the way they are. In other words, you need the big picture, all right. To torture this metaphor even more, the same principles can be applied to music. Before certain things come into focus, and that's what we're about to do. This is part two of a program called Big Picture Stuff. This is the ongoing history of new music podcast with Alan Cross. Changes on Changes. Don't tell them to go up. David Bowie with an introduction to this program on changes in music over the decades. Hi again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is part two of a look at some big picture stuff. Moments in history that changed everything about music. But because our big picture perspective is so big, you might not realize that things are the way they are because of these events. Historians call them hinge points, things that set off a chain of events that result in unexpected consequences. And this time, we're going to focus more on the role of technology as it pertains to music. Here's an example. We can trace the rise of streaming music services back to a fight between Microsoft and IBM in the early 1990s. Here we go. By 1992, the personal computer was well on its way to becoming a mainstream thing. But holding everything back was the interface. All those clunky DOS commands. Computers could only handle one task at a time. Graphics? They stunk. And sound? It was terrible. The race was on to come up with an easier way for everyday people to get into computing. That meant a graphical user interface that was hopefully better than what Apple had for their machines. IBM had an operating system called OS 2. Microsoft countered with Windows 3.1, and for a while it was a real dogfight. But then on August 15, 1995, Microsoft introduced Windows 95. Without getting too deep into computer software history, this was the release that turned Microsoft into the dominant player for personal computers. The one problem with Windows 95 was that it was a big program you needed nearly 60 megabytes of hard drive space just for the operating system. And yes, I did say 60 megabytes. Hard drive storage was really expensive back then, so onboard disks were really, really tiny. Installing Windows 95 required 26 of those little plastic 1.44 megabyte floppy disks. That took forever and so much could go wrong during the installation process. So Bill Gates came up with a solution put Windows 95 on this new thing called a CD-ROM. One disc, one installation routine, and that was it. And from then on, PCs started shipping with CD-ROM drives. It didn't take long for people to realize that the CD-ROM drives were essentially the same as the things that played compact discs, CD players. And the music on compact discs was nothing but data. That meant, in theory you should be able to transfer the data on a compact disc to your computer hard drive. And as the cost of hard drives came down, and as they got bigger, this is exactly what people started to do, especially after a program called Winamp appeared. It showed up as a free download on April the 12th, 1997 for all operating systems. Winamp allowed anyone to easily transfer the data from a CD to a computer's hard drive. They called that ripping. And Winamp used a new technology called Motion Picture Experts Group Layer 3, or MP3 for short. So instead of having your hard drive eaten up by giant WAV files, you had all your songs in the compressed MP3 format, which means you could store a lot more. And for a while, that was was just fine. You could have a limited amount, well, a very limited amount, of music instantly available on your PC. But then came the internet. People discovered that they could exchange these MP3 files online, especially using something called IRC. But that was still pretty awkward. Didn't really work that well. There were incomplete files, all kinds of issues. And you had to have a fair amount of computer knowledge to be able to use IRC. But then on June 1st, 1999, the original version of Napster arrived, setting off the illegal file-sharing revolution that nearly killed the legitimate established music industry. Sales of CDs began to crater, and there was nothing the labels could do about it. This is where Steve Jobs and iTunes come into play. Knowing that the record labels couldn't deal with the new digital realities, he presented them with the only real option that would work, his iTunes Music Store. And it wasn't long before iTunes controlled 70% of the worldwide market for legitimate digital downloads. But then along came streaming. The first legitimate streamer was Rhapsody in 2001. But by the end of the aughts, there were dozens of such services led by Spotify. And today record labels make somewhere between 65 and 80% of their revenue from streaming. Streaming saved the music industry. So the big picture takeaway? We got here because the Windows 95 operating system was so fat. (laughs) Here's another series of connections that will eventually lead us to a big picture resolution. And it has to do with this microphone. And how we got here. When Alexander Graham Bell, the man who gets a lot of credit for inventing the telephone, was 12 years old, he and a friend built a primitive robot contraption that could, uh, well, sort of speak. It had a head, lips, and a mouth, and was operated by using a set of bellows instead of some lungs. From there, we move on to a stray sky terrier named Truve. By the time he was 20, Bell was living with his parents in London, England. His mom's hearing had begun to deteriorate, which pained him greatly. And he began to think about something he called visible speech, a method by which he hoped the deaf could command verbally without actually having to hear what they were saying. His experiments began with Truve, the dog. He was taught to bark and growl on command. And through lots of training and lots of treats, Bell taught Truve to say mama and a few other sounds that sounded like human words. In this way, he learned how to teach deaf children to speak in sort of the same way. The parents of two of his students were so impressed that they began to pay Bell to work on other experiments that came from his talking dog trials, and that included his growing fascination with the transmission of sound. Eventually, he moved to near Brantford, Ontario, where he made friends with the residents of the nearby Six Nations Reserve. He discovered that their Mohawk language wasn't written down, so he translated this into his visible speech symbols and they made him an honorary chief for that. The more he thought about how sound looked, the more he began to imagine how sound might be turned into electrical waves. And after many experiments, he came up with a device that transformed sound vibrations into electrical signals and then back again. It was a microphone and a speaker. And this became the basis of the first practical working telephone. It was March 10th, 1876. On March 4, 1877, Emil Berliner, the man who would invent the gramophone featuring music on a rotating disc played by a stylus, invented a new kind of microphone. It was based on Bell's design, but sounded much, much better. From there, we moved to Thomas Edison, who came up with something even better in 1886. And this was the first mic used at the first-ever radio broadcast, an experimental thing, at the Metropolitan Opera in New York in 1910. Work continued on microphone technology through World War I, and by the time we get to the 1920s, something remarkable begins to happen. For centuries, singers had to be loud. That was the only way they could be heard over the musicians into the back rows of the theater. Volume, natural volume from lungs and diaphragms, was everything. Even in the early days of the recording industry, the singer had to have big lungs. That's because records were made in the acoustic way. Everybody was arranged around a big horn, basically a large funnel, which channeled sounds down to a diaphragm. Attached to the diaphragm was a stylus. And as the music played, the diaphragm vibrated and jiggled, causing the stylus to vibrate in exactly the same way. And as the stylus vibrated, it cut a groove into a rotating disc made of a special combination of metals. And that became the master for all records to be pressed on that performance really kind of weird how they did that. They squiggled the grooves into the record and then they had to plunge that record into a bath of acid to affix everything, to make it possible to turn it into a master. No edits, no overdubs, no fixing in the mix. If anybody made a mistake or the balance of the instruments and the singer was off, you had to start all over again. We'll, We'll come back to that point a little bit later in the show. But then came electrical recording. Instead of everything being shouted down this big funnel, Microphones were used to pick up the audio and electrically move the diaphragm and the stylus. This allowed engineers to manipulate the volume of the audio that went to the diaphragm. What this meant is that singers no longer had to be loud. By getting up close to the mic and having that audio signal boosted, their singing could be much more nuanced with more phrasing, different breathing, new dynamics. And they became known as microphone singers, and then later crooners, for the soft and romantic and emotional way they could now be heard. This is where we get performers like Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby, and we'll come back to him later too. The softest whispers could now be committed to record and to live performances. Here's an example of how music could sound now. This is a Chet Baker recording from 1954. Mm-hmm. My funny valentine Sweet comic valentine You make me smile Before the adoption of the microphone, you could never, ever record music like that. You would never get that sound on record. It feels like the guy is singing right into your ear, right into your head. And listen to that divinely played double bass. The microphone allowed for the subtlest bits of a performance to be picked up and stored and enjoyed later. This completely revolutionized musical performances and recordings in the 20th century. And you can draw a straight line from Alexander Graham Bell and his little dog to the cure whispering on this song. Now that we've connected all the dots as far as microphones go, the next step is to talk about audio amplification. And again, we go back to the olden days when there was no such thing. If you were a musician and you wanted to be louder, you needed more breath or more strength. And like I said, if you were a singer, you needed big lungs. Okay, sure, you could use natural amplification through building acoustics, but that could only take you so far. How could you artificially boost the volume of a sound? This was a real problem in the early days of phonographs and gramophones. The volume of a record was determined by the size of the acoustic horn that was attached to the tone arm. You could not turn it up. Although you could turn things down by sticking a ball of fabric into the horn to muffle things. That ball of fabric was known as a sock. And now you know where the phrase, stick a sock in it, comes from. Audio amplification was invented by a guy named Lee DeForest. It all began one day when he was working on another failing experiment, when he thought he saw a gas flame shiver. Was it because of the electromagnetic signals he was trying to generate? Was that flame actually detecting radio waves? Well, no, but there was a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of truth to this, and it indirectly led to the invention of something called the triode vacuum tube. It took any electrical signal and made it bigger. That included a sound from a microphone and by 1912, he had it working, and by 1914, DeForest had his first prototype of an audio amplifier. And soon, amps were used for any electrical signal that needed boosting. Telephones, telegraphs, radios, movies, televisions. It was also used for audio recording and for public address systems. This is where we meet Edwin Jensen and Peter Pridham. They had an American company called Magnavox. Between 1911 and 1915, they worked on ways to make a microphone work with a British invention known as the loudspeaker, using DeForest's amplifier tubes. On December 24, 1915, their Magnavox system was used for the first time. They had a mic, an amp, and a 34-inch speaker set up at San Francisco City Hall. A 100,000 people were there to hear Christmas music and holiday speeches, amplified by this new technology. More work continued through the 1920s. King George V spoke to 90,000 people at the British Empire Exhibition in 1925. Movie studios got into the act. They needed big speakers and amps for their talking motion pictures, and that pushed things further in the 30s and 40s. But then came rock and roll. PA systems for voice were one thing. For music, that was a whole other thing entirely. When the Beatles played Shea Stadium in August 1965, all they had behind them was four Alltech amplifiers, each generating 175 watts of power through the same PA system that the announcer used for baseball games. At the time, that setup was crazy, crazy loud, but the crowd at this Beatles gig generated 135 decibels of noise, which was twice the volume that those Alltech amps could crank out. So something had to change. The Beach Boys commissioned a specially built sound system for their tours. So did Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. Some advances were made for festivals like Monterey Pop in 1967 and Woodstock in 1969. But when it comes to modern-day concert amplification, it was the Grateful Dead who really broke through with their wall of sound setup in 1972. It generated at least 26,000 watts, maybe as much as 30,000. So, if you've ever been to a concert, I mean, Come on, who hasn't? It all began one day in 1900 when Lee DeForest thought he saw an open flame dance. When we come back, more big picture stuff when it comes to technology and our music. So don't go anywhere. Welcome back. This is part two of a program on big picture concepts. We're standing way back so we can take in as much as we can about some of the everyday things that we take for granted when it comes to music. Earlier in the program, we talked about the move from acoustic recording to electrical recording. But up until the 1940s, musicians had to get recordings completely right during a take because there was no way to edit or Otherwise, fix an audio recording once it had been committed to the master disc. Today, though, we can multitrack, we can overdub, edit, mix, remix, and manipulate in an infinite number of ways. And the reason we can do that is because of the Nazis. During World War II, the Allies were always trying to figure out where Hitler was. If he was on the radio making a speech, then it was theoretically easy to track him down, But then those monitoring Nazi broadcasts got confused. Hitler was delivering a speech in Berlin, and in Munich, and in Leipzig, and in Dresden, and in Hamburg, all at the same time, and they were all different speeches. And they weren't short speeches either, they went on for hours. How could this be? Well, obviously they were recordings, but how was this done? The most a radio transcription disc could hold was maybe 20 minutes, yet German radio had Hitler on for hours. And only that, they'd switch to dance music after he was done. And these bands would play through the entire night without taking a break. How was that possible? The secret wasn't revealed until just before the end of the war, when Jack Mullen, a member of the U.S. Army Signal Corps, was assigned to figure everything out. When he inspected a site near Frankfurt, he stumbled upon a machine the Nazis called a magnetophone. It used reels of magnetic tape to store and play back audio. And they were amazing. On his way back to the States, Mullen stopped by a German radio station where he was given two magnetophone machines, each the size of a suitcase, along with about 50 reels of magnetic recording tape. Because the U.S. ordered all wartime patents held by Germany canceled, Mullen was free to take this technology back to the U.S. to exploit it in whatever way he saw fit. His big idea was to show it to movie studios as a way of improving the sound of films. During one such demonstration in 1947, there in the audience happened to be a guy named Murdo McKenzie. Murdo McKenzie was Bing Crosby's musical director. At the time, Bing was a big radio star, but he hated having to do two live shows a day, one for the Eastern Time Zone, and then again three hours later for the West Coast. What a waste of time, he said. He wanted to be out golfing instead. But when McKenzie showed him what Mullen's machines could do, he was instantly hooked. This technology meant that he could record his East Coast performance, leave the studio, and then hit the links, and let the technicians with their tape machines take care of the West Coast feed. And because the sound quality was so good, nobody could tell that it was taped. Mullen was hired to be Bing's chief engineer. He then worked with a new recording technology company called Ampex, into which being invested $50,000, which is more than half a million dollars today. Ampex then set the standard for both audio and video recording on tape. The technology soon spread to recording studios. Electrical recording now used mixing boards and tape, and this tape could be cut and edited. And soon multi-track recording meant that sound-on-sound recordings were possible. This all led to the modern recording industry and all the music that we listen to today. If you have an audio or video editing app on your phone, you can trace that back through Bing Crosby and Jack Mullen to a bunch of anonymous Nazi scientists. Same thing if you've ever recorded some music with your buddies, like, say, uh, Jack Johnson. Well, my friend had a no-good talk. The next big-picture story has to do with vinyl and CDs, and it begins with an attack by Egypt and Syria on Israel on October 6, 1973. After a little less than three weeks, it was all over, with Israel gaining considerable territory. Because the West had supported Israel in this war, almost all the Arab oil-producing states cut back production and supplies, creating a spike in the price of oil and all petrochemical products. This was the oil crisis of 1973 and 1974 which resulted in all kinds of shortages and a recession one area that took a real hit was the recorded music industry vinyl is a petrochemical product costs suddenly started to go up so to combat this the recording industry had to become resourceful it began by using recycled vinyl and it began to make records thinner and this turned out not to be such a good idea first No matter how careful you are, recycled vinyl contains impurities. The vinyl just wasn't as slick and smooth, so that meant more noise during playback. More rumble, more hiss, more clicks, more pops. Not great for audio quality. And thinner records didn't help. The grooves were more shallow, meaning that they stored less musical information. Because the stylus didn't sit as deeply, it could jump around with the slightest vibration. That caused scratches. And that meant more clicks and more pops and more skipping records. And thinner records warped more often and more easily. This meant that by the end of the 1970s, the quality of a brand new vinyl record straight out of the shrink wrap, right from the store, was often inferior to in manufacturing quality and material than a used record that had been around since 1970. Vinyl quality deteriorated to the point where it was so bad that when the CD came along in late 1982, it was exactly what lovers of good sound were looking for. So no wonder that by the late 80s, people were throwing out all their vinyl in favor of compact discs. Now, superior audio technology was always going to win out, and we would have got the CD regardless. But you have to wonder if we would have got the compact disc as soon as we did, and if we would have all adopted them so quickly, had vinyl quality been up to snuff through the 1970s and early 80s. Just just a thought. Our next big picture story begins in the year 1098. Yes, more than 900 years ago. This was when Hildegard van Bingen was born in what is now modern Germany. Hildegard became a nun and was eventually regarded as a mystic and visionary. Some even consider her to be the mother of science in Germany. But she was also a composer of a special type of sacred music. Hildegard basically invented the sound of standard liturgical chanting that began to be heard in Catholic churches, cathedrals, and monasteries starting in about the 12th century. The official term for this music is sacred monophony. Her most famous work was Ordo Virtutum, which was composed sometime around 1156. That's beautiful, haunting stuff. And it turns out that this was the perfect kind of music for large stone cathedrals that were being built across the country. They were big cavernous buildings, and they were very, very echoey. And because of this echo, because of the architectural design of these places, you have to be very careful with the music played during church services. It couldn't be too fast. It couldn't have quick singing with lots of lyrics. You couldn't switch between a bunch of chords quickly, and it couldn't have any beats or rhythm. Otherwise, the echo and the reverb created by the building itself would quickly turn everything into an unlistenable mess. But Hildegard von Bingham's slow, somber music was perfect for this kind of architecture, this Gothic architecture. Her style of chanting and singing was picked up by others through the centuries, and these composers figured out how to use the acoustics of the cathedrals to enhance this music. The technology of architecture influenced the composition of music, and it was this Gothic music that evolved and twisted in shape until we get modern Gothic music. So, if you want to take a very, very, very long view at the history of today's goth music culture, you have to go all the way back to Hildegard von Bingham and the massive cathedrals in which her music was performed hundreds of years ago. Yes, that's the Sisters of Mercy from 1987, but the roots of that kind of composition Go back to 1156. Back with a couple more big picture stories from music history in just a sec. This is the home stretch of a program featuring big picture stories from music history. And this time, we're talking specifically about how technology created some unexpected consequences for music. You might be listening to this episode on headphones. And for that, you need to give thanks to a guy named Nathaniel Baldwin, a Mormon fundamentalist whose father was from somewhere in Ontario dad had several wives nathaniel was son of wife number two uh, and nate also believed very strongly in polygamy while working as an electrician on a hydroelectric dam in northern utah he invented a new type of telephone receiver that was much better than anything else currently in use At the time, radio operators aboard U.S. naval ships were using earpieces to hear faint signals, but they weren't very good because they weren't very sensitive. When the Navy tested Baldwin's invention, they put in a big order for his headphones, which he assembled himself on his own kitchen table. The government contract made him a lot of money, which he invested in his company called the Baldwin Radio Company, which employed a lot of Mormons who still believed in polygamy. In fact, profits from the factory went to promoting an offshoot of a very fundamentalist version of the Church of Latter-day Saints. But it didn't work, and he went bankrupt in 1924. A fraud conviction several years later saw him go to jail for two years. And get this, Nathaniel Baldwin never patented his headphone invention. Other people picked up on the technology with little success other than for industrial applications, telephone operators, radio stations, the military, that sort of thing. But then in 1953, a guy named John Koss came up with the idea of exploiting this new thing called television. After visiting someone in the hospital, he thought, hey, listen, how about a company that rents TVs to patients who are stuck in the hospital? And that became the J.C. Cost Television Rental Company and that gave him enough money to attempt to create a portable record player. Now, remember, this is the 1950s. Truly portable record players did not exist until now. The first model came with a privacy switch, which shut off the speaker and instead sent the music to a set of headphones. Okay, wait a second, he thought, why can't I make headphones that can plug into anything for private listening? And so, in 1958... The 1st standalone consumer consumer-grade headphones, the Koss SP3s, were introduced. The product was a huge, huge hit, and we've been buying headphones ever since. I, on on, I, I, on I, I have one final big-picture story for music history, and we have to backtrack a bit to the invention of the telephone. At first, Alexander Graham Bell thought you needed two phones, one to call someone, the outgoing call, and a phone for someone to call you, the incoming call. If you wanted phone service, technicians would come to your house and run a wire from your place to the person you wanted to call. And they would also run a wire back from their place so they could call you on one of their two phones. If you wanted to be able to call somebody else, well, then you needed another pair of phones. And so would the person on the other end. So this was obviously stupid. Enter a guy named George Coy. It was his idea that all phones be connected to a central exchange. You would pick up a phone, which would connect you to this exchange. And from there, a specially trained telephone operator would connect you to anyone who had a phone by physically plugging the outlet from your phone to the input of the phone the person you wanted to call using a short length of wire. The question became, how do you build this switching station? Koi tried all kinds of designs for the plugs needed by these connections, including, believe it or not, using wires from women's bras. They had to be quick connect, they had to be quick disconnect, and they had to be very, very, very durable. Finally, he figured it out. We know his invention today as the quarter-inch phono plug. If you have ever plugged in a guitar, or a microphone, or a full-size set of headphones, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That thing at the end of the wire dates back to 1878. The patent was filed in 1902. And the basic design of all headphone plugs, including the 3.5mm stereo connector that is so widely used today from line-in, line-out sockets on computers, descended from George Coy's design. And now... Thanks to George, anyone can play guitar. Okay, so, sorry about that, but I needed a way to, to get into this song. I and those are the kinds of stories that you can ring out of music history if you just stand back far enough and look deep into the past in ways you might not have otherwise bothered to do. I especially love the stories featuring unexpected consequences. It just shows you that nothing in this universe exists in a vacuum. If you want more stories about music, everything we do here is turned into a podcast. You can find hundreds at Apple Podcasts through Spotify or any other podcast platform in the known universe. If you want playlists of my show, just go to my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com, and launch a search. They're all there, including everything from this program. Just look for Ongoing History. That website is also updated with music, news, and information every single day. And to make it easier, there's a free daily newsletter. We can connect via email anytime you like. Use alan at alancross.ca. And we can also maybe find each other on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross.